Amen. Thank you, worship team. Kids, you're dismissed to your classrooms. Whether you're taking off in a dead sprint or a leisurely, leisurely pace, you are dismissed now. For the rest of you, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 2. We're going to be jumping all over the place this morning, mostly in Paul's letters, actually, but uh, we'll be starting in Philippians 2, so you can go ahead and turn with me there. We are in the middle, literally, it's week two of a three-week series which is all about the love that Jesus has for us. And if you missed the sermon last week, I'd encourage you to go back and watch on the website or listen to the podcast. But the premise of the series is very simple. As you can see, it's based on the, uh, the first song that many of us learned growing up as kids, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know. And the, the, the premise is all about how much Jesus loves us. And there's a question mark after this I know because I have a theory that we don't really know how much Jesus loves us. We think we do. We talk about how much he loves us a lot. But when it really comes to understanding like the true depth of his love for us, I think we are, all, our idea of it is just too small. And so my prayer throughout this series is that you will have a better and deeper and richer and fuller understanding of just how much you are, in fact, loved by Jesus, because it's true. It's true, because I think a church, like, man, if we could get this, like a church that really gets it, really understands just how much we're loved, like, I think that's a church that's unstoppable, because it is filled with people whose entire lives have been changed, because they recognize the incredible reality of the love of Jesus. And so my prayer is that we are encouraged as we talk about these things. And last week we talked about the nature of Christ's love, meaning what does Christ's look, love look like in action? And we saw three things last week. We'll go through them briefly. We saw, first of all, that Jesus' love is actually drawn toward sinners. We saw that illustrated when in the Gospels, when he was here on earth, the people that he spent his time with were, in fact, the, the sinners and tax collectors, the lowest of the low in society. And a lot of people said, well, why in the world is he hanging out with those people. And, and Jesus told them, it's because I'm the great physician. Those who think they're, they're well, those who think that they're healthy don't need a physician. It's the people who know that they're sick. Jesus said, I came to heal. And all these things that were true then are still true today because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so Jesus's love is actually drawn toward sinners, we said that Jesus, we like to think that maybe because of our sin, he doesn't love us as much as he could. But we actually saw the exact opposite. Jesus doesn't side against us because of our sin. He sides with us against our sin. So none of this is to lessen how much Jesus hates sin. He detests it. He can't stand it. He's a holy God. But he doesn't side against us because of our sin. He sides with us against our sin. Do you see the distinction there? It's amazing. And then secondly, we saw this incredible truth that Jesus' love will never cast you out. We talked about the beautiful finality of that word, never, right? I just want to sit there. I feel like I could just preach on that one word, never. He will never cast you out told you to get the tattoo. I don't know if anyone took me up on that this week. 
Our hearts are always coming up with right reason after reason of why, why we think Jesus is on his last straw with us, why he's just about ready to kick us out of the nest. Man, what an amazing truth. He will never cast you out. And then finally, we saw that Jesus' love actually fro- flows from the love of the Father. We like to think maybe sometimes it's like a good cop, bad cop situation, right? Where there's Jesus is the one filled with grace, and he's just kind of holding back God the Father because God the Father is so upset with you. But Jesus, the, God the Father sent the Son, And if you're saved, it's because it's God's will that you've been saved. It's what he wants, and what he wants, he gets. So the love that Jesus has for you is one and the same as the love that the Father has for you. It's not angry with you. He doesn't hold hold it against you that you needed to be saved. God the Father is overjoyed to call you his child. That's the nature of his love that we saw. It sounds too good to be true, kind of, doesn't it? Which is why I think we're starting to understand why it's called the good news. We like to make the good news maybe a little bit less good. The good news is called the good news because it's the best news there is. Praise the Lord. But you know what? Part of the reality of the good news, part of the reality of all these things that we talked about last week is that it wasn't free Right? The good news came at an incredible cost. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Last week we talked about the nature of Christ's love. This week we're talking about the cost of Jesus' love. So before we do that, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, God, thank you for these incredible realities that we just struggle to get our mind around. Lord, forgive us for where we've thought too little of the love that you have for us. I pray for any in this room right now who still might be struggling to believe that it applies to them. Just give us by your spirit a fresh sense, God, of how much you love us. Lord, as we talk about the cost of your love, we see even deeper how much you love us because of what it cost you. Sending your son, Father, because of what it cost Jesus, his life. So, Lord, encourage our hearts this morning by your spirit. Speak through me. Speak through your word, first and foremost. May your spirit just fill this place, God. May we just be overjoyed with the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who does not know yet the good news, I pray that they would indeed know. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, true love is costly. The greater the cost, the deeper the love. You've probably heard this story, the old story, the gift of the magi, where there's a husband and a wife, they want to give each other Christmas presents, they're poor, they don't have money to buy Christmas presents for each other. So the husband has this precious possession, he has a a pocket watch, and he sells that very precious possession of his so that he can buy combs for his wife. And his, his wife has its precious possession, which is her beautiful hair, and she cuts it all off and sells it so that she can buy a pocket watch chain for her husband's pocket watch, right? And then they get come together and they give each other the gifts and they realize the irony that both of the gifts are now worthless because she doesn't have hair anymore, although I guess it would grow back, but she doesn't have hair anymore and uh, he doesn't have his pocket watch anymore. 
But what do they come? The moral of the story, right, is in the end that they realize that the love that they've shown one another through the sacrifice that they made is more valuable than any sort of material thing that they could have received. The stories of sacrificial love kind of resonate with us, don't we? Stories of people who are willing to put their lives on the line for the sake of others. Like those stories really resonate deep within us. I was reading this week, there was a story about a, uh, during the Holocaust, there was a certain cell block at a concentration camp where, uh, where somebody had gotten out and uh, the Nazi guard uh, came and questioned everybody to see who had abetted this guy, who had, who had helped this guy escape and um, nobody had and so they were going to all be killed. And one 47-year-old Franciscan priest stepped forward and said, I want to give my life and sacrifice myself so they can live. Like, that's incredible, right? That, there's, there's no greater way to show your love for somebody else than to lay down your entire life. And that's what Jesus did for us. He laid down his life. Now, here's where I think the problem comes, is that we don't always fully understand just why he had to do that. We don't fully comprehend why Jesus had to go through what he went through. And if we don't understand why he made the sacrifice, our understanding of the sacrifice is going to be lessened. Like, let's say uh, sometime this week you're out with your family uh, walking by the road and, and maybe you have, there's somebody in the road that's about to get hit by a semi and you jump in and pull them out of the way and you get hit by the semi and save their, give your life to save theirs. Well, you'd be a hero, right? But if you just tell me, all right, after church, I'm going to go stand on 19 and just wait for a semi to hit me so I can show my family how much I love them, be like, dude, get out of the road. Like, that's not necessary, right? Christ's sacrifice for us is all the more incredible when we realize just how much we needed it. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to see three different things that Christ did to demonstrate the cost of his love for us. But we're not only going to talk about what it cost him, we're going to talk about exactly why we needed to do him to do the exact thing that he did. If he had not done exactly what he did in the exact way that he did it, then we would not have had any hope. And so we're going to talk about the sacrifice, the cost, as well as what it means to us. Sound good? That's where we're heading this morning. We're going to see this in three different ways. The first thing we're going to see is that Jesus made himself nothing. That comes from Philippians chapter 2, which hopefully you're, you're looking at right now. It'll also be on your screen. What I have on the screen is the NLT, I, I think, if I remember correctly. I like this version of this verse. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of, as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus, God the Son, equal with God the Father, came to earth. And not only did he come to earth, but he gave up every right that he had to be treated like God. He was equal with God, but he decided to give up every right that he would have to be treated as such. 
and came to earth and made himself nothing and took the form of a servant. And this is already like well beyond our ability to even grasp this. Like we can't even comprehend. I'm going to give an analogy here and it's not going to make any sense because what Jesus did is so far beyond what, uh, what we can understand. But here I'm going to give my best shot at it. Like imagine, say, like uh, Jeff Bezos, uh, the head of Amazon. I think he's the richest man in the world. Like imagine that he just says, I'm going to go and I'm going to live among the poorest people in the world. Like I'm going to go live among them. You'd be like, well, that's a strange choice, certainly. But you'd imagine that he would use kind of his vast resources to make that place maybe not so unbearable for himself. And not only that, but the people who he was living among would all certainly be able to see that he was different than them, right? This is the wealthiest man in the world. He's a different class, in a sense, of where we are. Like, that's probably how you would imagine it. But imagine instead, he said, I'm going to give up everything that I have and go live among these people, and I'm going to be indistinguishable from these people. Like, no one will know anything about who I am, and I'm going to give up. I'm not going to keep my, like, red button that says, helicopter, come pick me up and take me away from here. Like, I am going all in. Like, that, that would make any sense to us. And yet, that's what Jesus did, like, times infinity, right? He was God, is God, equal with God the Father. And what does he do? He willingly lays aside all of his rights as God and willingly chose to give himself every limitation of humanity. Think about it. Jesus was never tempted to sin before he came to earth. But he came to earth and he was tempted, the Bible says, in every way as we are. We like to think maybe Jesus had like some sort of cheat code where the temptation wasn't that bad for him. No, he was tempted in every way and did not sin. So Jesus willingly chose to take on a life of battling temptation for us. He willingly chose that. It's the same with hunger and thirst and weariness and pain and anxiousness and disappointment and loss and grief and sorrow and everything that makes being a human really hard sometimes. God chose to take on all of those things. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't decide that he was going to take his rights as God, but he made himself nothing. And the reason he did it was so that you can have everything. So that you can have everything. See, God can't abide with sin. God can't abide with sinners like you and me. So if we're going to spend eternity with God, we needed to be perfect. Anyone in here perfect? You can raise your hand. Not seeing any hands raised, right? Our righteousness needed to come from somewhere. And it comes from Jesus. Like We needed someone among us to live a perfect life. So that that righteousness could then be credited to our account. And to a man, everyone born in the history of humanity had failed miserably and spectacularly in that. It was only God himself who could do that. 
And Jesus willingly came and battled temptation and overcame it and never sinned so that his righteousness could be credited to us and so that he could be a model now for us how to live. Because without him, we don't have a good model. We don't know how to live. Nobody's perfect until Jesus came. So we needed that. We needed him to come and not just come as in the form of God, although he was fully God. We can't understand it. He didn't give up his deity in the slightest, but he was fully man. He fully battled everything that you battle every day, and he never failed. We needed that. Romans 5, 18 through 19 says, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of one man, Adam, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, Jesus, many will be made righteous. No one is righteous on their own. Our only hope was if Jesus did exactly what he did, and he did. And even in coming to earth, like not even talking about the cross, even in coming to earth, the sacrifice that he made for us, which is exactly what we needed, is beyond what we can fathom. Jesus loves you so much that he willingly made himself nothing so that you can have everything. Praise the Lord for that, huh? Second, gets better, Jesus became a curse. Became a curse. We don't talk about this very much. We don't talk about the idea of curses. Curses aren't really a thing in our culture necessarily. So it can be easy to miss what's happening here. You see, there's two curses that humanity has been placed under. Two curses. The first one is the curse of sin. The curse of sin. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And all of humanity was cursed in that moment. The world was perfect. There was perfect fellowship with God. Things were, work was easy. There was perfect joy. There was no sin. There was no sorrow. There was no death. There was no disease. Everything was perfect. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the, sinned, the curse of sin came into the world. We see this in Genesis chapter 3. And God tells Eve, like, uh, hey, childbearing is going to be a real bummer now. So sorry about that, ladies. And tells Adam, hey, work is going to stink now. It's going to be hard. It's going to be toil every single day. These are things that we have, we live in now because of the curse. That's the first curse. Because of this sin, separation has become between man and God. And now we live in the curse of sin. That's curse number one. The second curse is the curse of the law. The curse of the law. What's the law? It's the Old Testament. It's, it's the rules that everyone needed to live by in order to live a perfect life. And every single person has failed to do that. So the law is what reveals to us just how unrighteous we are. The law doesn't make us unrighteous. The law shows us how unrighteous we are. When Mike Harlow is a referee in a football game and he throws a flag for holding, his flag didn't make the holding happen. His flag revealed that a penalty had occurred. That's what the law is. The law is what shows us just how far we are from God. So because we have the law, we know that there's no hope for us. We're trapped. See that? We have the curse of sin, and we have the curse of the law. And because of these two curses, we are trapped, and we have no way out. 
So what did Jesus do about that? Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus became the curse for us. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So that we can now have the blessing of Abraham through the spirit. So we can be free. So we can be free. The curse was on us. We were trapped. The law showed us there was no way out. And what did Jesus do? He showed us how much he loves us by becoming the curse for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says the same thing in a different way. It says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The curse has been lifted The sinless one bore our sin. Catch this. When Adam sinned, what did God say was going to come up from the ground as the sign of the curse on humanity? What was it? Thorns. When Jesus came to become the curse, what did they put on his head but a crown of thorns? He literally bore the curse. That's not an accident, church. He bore the curse for us so that we might be free in him. One commentator describes it like a heart surgeon realizing that his patient needs a heart transplant to survive, so he just voluntarily gives his own heart and his life so the patient would live. Who does that? Jesus, because he loves you, and he proves it by becoming the curse for us. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, and now we're free from the curse of sin, and we're free from the curse of the law. Jesus loves me. This I know. Praise the Lord. He became the curse for us. Third, finally, Jesus suffered and died. He suffered and died. And when Jesus took the curse for us, he knew what it meant. It meant a sacrifice was going to have to be made. The sacrifice of the spotless lamb. He was going to have to give his life. And he knew this. His whole time on earth, he knew this. We see him kind of dodging bullets throughout the Gospels, right? He'll do a miracle. He'll tell someone who he is. And then he'll say, don't you tell anyone who I am. And you think, that's weird. Why would Jesus say that? It's because his time hadn't come yet. See, other times in the Gospels where maybe the authorities are getting ready to arrest him and he escapes. Why? Because his time hadn't come yet. Jesus was in control the entire time. And today is Palm Sunday when Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem for the final time, knowing that on Friday he'd be hanging on the cross. Jesus was in control the entire time. He knew why he had come. And he came to suffer and die. And when the time came, he willingly and obediently went to the cross. So Jesus goes through a few uh, sham trials. People just trying to pin some things on him that obviously aren't true. 
Pilate asked the crowd, you want me to free Jesus? You want me to free Barabbas? Awful criminal. They said, give us Barabbas. We want Jesus dead. So Jesus is sentenced to death, and he's scourged, which is a punishment that's so severe that it would kill people often before they could even get to the crucifixion. And he was tied to a post and beaten with a whip that had bits of bone and metal woven in so that his skin and tissue were shredded to nothing. And he survived this, and then he was stripped naked and mocked by his captors who put this scarlet robe and jammed that crown of thorns into his skull, woven into a shape of a crown. And they knelt before him with evil in their hearts, and they shouted mockingly, Hail to the king of the Jews, and they spit on him. They beat him over the head with a reed and they forced him to carry the beam of his own cross up the hill to Golgotha to the place he would be executed until he can't carry it anymore because he's lost so much blood. And he was nailed to the cross and he was crucified. Now, all the while still being mocked, they hung a sign over his head. This is, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. People passing by shouted at him, aren't you the guy who's going to raise the temple again in three days? Look at you now. Aren't you calling yourself the son of God? Get off the cross. And in this moment, we see the depths of Jesus' heart. And what comes out, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus the Son of God, innocent in every way, is being mocked and spat on and beaten to within an inch of his life and a crown of thorns on his head, nails in his hands and feet. He's hanging on the cross and the weight of the sin of the world is on his shoulders. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's there we see the depth of Jesus' heart. And what flows from that is forgiveness. Dear child of God, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. For you. Look at Galatians 2.20. It says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, catch this, me and gave himself for me. I love that. Paul is personalizing that deeply right there. He could have said us. Other places he does say us. There's a corporate nature to our salvation that Jesus died to ransom his people. But when it comes down to it, Jesus died for me. Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. Man, we almost want to like repel against that, don't we? No, Jesus, not me. Don't do that for me. I don't deserve that. Why would you die for me, Jesus? It's not right. You're not the guilty one. I'm the guilty one. Why would you die for me? You didn't deserve this. I do. And it's in those moments where we start to grasp, understand the depth of Jesus' love for us because of what it cost him. Romans 5, 7, and 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, 
though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we least deserved it, when we had the least amount of hope, when we were the absolute furthest away from God, it's not like we were getting close. It's not like Jesus died to kind of just finish that gap because we were getting close. We were the furthest from God. It's like we sing in the song, All I Have is Christ. As I ran my hell-bound race, I was running a race to hell. Indifferent to the cross, I didn't care. He looked upon my helpless state and he led me to the cross. You were running in the opposite direction of God and in that moment he looked at you and he said, I love you. I love you. You're mine. Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. Man, if you don't know Jesus this morning, I need to just beg you, if you're looking for healing anywhere else other than the cross, you're not going to find it. You're not. Come to Jesus. He loved you. He gave himself for you. Run to him. I actually had the privilege last week of praying with two people who were tired of running for God, and they did. They placed their faith in Jesus for the first time. And so if you have not done that yet, Come to Jesus. He loves you. He gave himself for you. I'd love to pray with you after the service if that's you. If you know Jesus this morning, if you're already following him, then, man, you just need to know how much he loves you. It's like we said last week, we always want to come up with these fresh reasons why Jesus just doesn't love us as much as he could or just doesn't love us as much as he loves other people. Jesus loves you fiercely. He proved it on the cross. So stop keeping him at arm's length, church. You've been crucified with Christ. You no longer live. It's Christ who lives in you. The life that you live in the flesh, you live by faith in Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. So don't keep him at arm's length. Are you worried he's going to figure out what's in your heart? He already knows what's in your heart. That's why he's drawn to you. You've been crucified with Christ, so give him all of yourself. Just hand it all over. Say, I'm yours, Jesus. Do with me what you will. And when you do that, the Spirit is going to show you, help you feel the depth of his love for you. You were lost without it. Loving you cost Jesus his life. And so give him yours, church. He loves you. This I know. Let's pray.